Would you please open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John? Open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. You're going to have to have your fingers ready this morning. We're going to be in some different texts of Scripture. Uh, on, On many Sundays, we do expository preaching where we move through a text of Scripture verse by verse... And, and, and we unpack it that way. We do exposition. We're pulling out of the text as we're moving through it. And then on, on, on Sundays, on occasions, we'll do topical exposition where we're moving around different sections of the Bible and looking what it has to say about a particular topic, hence topical. Uh, this morning, I'm going to be offering a topical message. I'll tell you uh, more about that. But get, get open to the Gospel of John. And as you have the Gospel of John... In front of you, let me give you some context. This is a first century account written by the historic John, who was a part of the eyewitness community of the historical Jesus. More intimately than being a part of the eyewitness community, more intimately, he was a part of the inner circle of Jesus' closest of friends. A former fisherman whose life was changed by Jesus, who chose not only John to be his disciple and biographer, but more intimately, John was chosen unto salvation and made a member of God's own family by God the Father's own Son, the historical Jesus, God the Son in the flesh. As we enter into the text of John chapter 1, we will read of, of, of God the Son who has is, who is took flesh upon himself, who has become a man. And we'll get there in just a moment. The title of my sermon this morning is What is Going On? What's going on? If you're like me, when you hear that question, you might think of the 1970s hit by Marvin Gaye. What's going on? Uh, Gay was a great singer. Uh, this, this wasn't a regular song, however, a regular carefree song, shall I say. It was a reflective piece. Apparently, the first-person lyrics of the song, What's Going On, were told from the point of view of a soldier returning from the violent Vietnam War and finding things at home, in, 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 it was just a big mess. You, you've risked your life to fight for your country, and you come back to that country, and you're like, is this what I was fighting to protect? To protect, there's social, there's political disarray. The lyrics of the song uh, they, they lament the visible hatred, suffering, injustice uh, around the country that were particularly widespread at, at the time uh, around the Vietnam War and coming back. You had racism and poverty and crime and drug abuse and, and violence running rampant. That said, I, I found myself thinking of this song and humming the song, in fact, in recent weeks, processing the violence that we have seen. Last weekend, on the 14th and and 15th, there were two deadly shootings. May 15th, Laguna Woods, California, an an evil man entered a church of a small Christian Taiwanese congregation. Uh, At the time that we were here, you know, worshiping, this man entered this church, and apparently he chained the doors shut, and he superglued the locks, and then he opened fire during a luncheon at the church using two handguns. He shot six people, one of which died. Uh, the, the fellow who died is actually a friend of a friend of mine. A good friend of mine had posted on Facebook that he was good friends with the guy who died. Is that close to home? Uh, four items similar to Molotov cocktails were stored inside of a bag that were fa- found at the crime scene. It, it's suspected to be a part of a hate crime that was targeting Taiwanese people. The gunman is believed to be a part of a Chinese communist group. May, May 14th in Buffalo, New York, a wicked man who was clad in body armor, uh, armor opened fire at a Topps supermarket, killing 10 including a security guard and wounded three others. Apparently the gunman wrote a manifesto filled with white supremacist ideology and hate. In the press, there were reports that the rifle that he used had the N-word written on it, along with the names of white supremacist mass murderers written on the weapon that he used to kill. April the 10th, New York City subway, there was the deranged man who put on a gas mask and threw two smoke grenades and fired a handgun 33 times, killing 10 people and injuring 19 others. The attacker fled the scene and, and was arrested after a 30-hour manhunt. The man had an extensive uh, violent criminal record. His social media was filled with radical black nationalism, anti-Semitism, and hatred towards whites. April the 3rd, there was a shooting at downtown Sacramento that killed six people, injured 12 others, and the gunmen still remain at large. I I could go on. These stories of violence and, and hate in our country, in our culture, bring us to this introductory point to today's message that you see on your outline, the darkness. What is going on? What is the deal? 
what is the problem? It's the darkness. Draw your eyes to the text of John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. The world is in darkness. John begins his gospel with the world in darkness. John begins his gospel, in fact, echoing the very uh, beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis, which begins with God and creation. In, in the beginning, God created is how Genesis begins. And so John begins paralleling the Torah in that regard. So he goes back to the beginning with God and creation. That creation was not dark. That creation was light and, and, and love and fellowship with God. God created humanity to know his love. God created humanity in his own image to reflect him and to exist in this intimacy and this, this sweet fellowship with him. However, humanity rebelled against God. And that rebellion ushered in darkness. More than the darkness, it ushered in dysfunction, disease, and death. We rebelled against the giver of life, and so life was taken back, and disease and death has come as a result. And death, and death isn't the end of it all, because... We were made to live with God forever. We were made reflecting Him in body and soul. And so in death, when the body dies, the soul still has existence, and biological death will not escape the justice that is due to those who have rebelled against the giver of life. And so we not only have uh, 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 death, but we have damnation. We will be judged by the Creator, and we will not escape the justice that is due to us as those who have rebelled against this wondrous and loving and kind and powerful and righteous and just creator. The good news to this bad news of damnation and death and disease and dysfunction and darkness, the, the good news to this is what John is telling us. There is one who has come and in him is life. In him is light. And who is this one who has come? Draw your eyes to the text in verse 14. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John is bearing testimony of the historical Jesus. The historical Jesus is God in the flesh. Specifically God the Son, the God of creation you see is Father, Son, and Spirit. As, as the creation rebelled against the God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit, the Father sent the Son into the creation. The son became a part of the rebel community. He became a human. That death that we deserve, that damnation that we deserve, he took upon himself in our place as a sacrifice for us and gave his life for us. Behold the God of creation. Behold this gracious and merciful God who, who in the face of rebellion against him, responded with this, this, this sacrifice for us. And mind you, I have to use terms like responded because we're these temporal beings who are trapped in before and after moments and, and we exist in succession that way. But the God who is, is eternal. There, there's no response. He's, he's eternal. He's all-knowing. He, 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 before the foundations of the world, this plan was there, that the Son would come, that the Son would rescue, that God would create that the creation would fall, that darkness would come, but oh, the light would shine. Draw your eyes at the text in verse 9. We read of that light, the true light, verse 9, coming into the world that enlightens men. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Why didn't they receive him? Because they're in the darkness. So to the question, what's going on, the, the answer to that question is the darkness. The creation is rebelled against the creator. The creator designed the creation to have harmony and love. Rebellion has brought in disharmony and hate. The creator created for, for life. The rebellion has brought in death. The darkness is upon us. But behold the creator who has sent the sun into the darkness to shine his light. And as we study the life of the sun, we study accounts like John and the Gospels and the, the writings of the New Testament, we see Jesus coming into the darkness and we see him shining his light. Particularly, he shines his light in his teaching ministry. 
When you study his teachings, you see what he's doing when he teaches. He's unpacking and getting at not abstract darkness that's out there in the creation, but the darkness that's within the hearts of men. Jesus focuses on the heart. It is a huge emphasis in his teaching ministry. In fact, in the beginning of our service, we read from a major section, the Sermon on the Mount, where he just keeps getting at the heart. He keeps getting at the heart. In that sermon in Matthew 5, 8, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The problem, of course, is we're not pure in heart. We need one to wash us, to make us pure. And Jesus' teachings kept exposing that sobering reality that there is darkness within. In Matthew 15, the Pharisees accused Jesus of defiling, uh, uh, Jesus' disciples of defiling themselves by eating with ceremonially unclean hands and rebuking them. Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship in, in vain. Their teachings are rules taught by men. You see, Jesus goes for the heart. As we would say, he goes for the jugular, but the jugular is the heart. And in his teaching, he just keeps pressing into the heart. And he keeps lifting up the law of God to see that, look, we fall short. Uh, and, and, and our hearts do not want to humble ourselves before the law of God. We, we need to be rescued from our hearts. And Jesus teaches the law and he, he says things like, yeah, you've heard don't cheat on your spouse. You've heard don't kill people. But let me tell you something. There's a deeper problem going on. Don't cheat on your spouse. There's lust in your heart. There's lust in your heart. Don't, don't kill people. There's anger in your heart. You see, because, oh, oh don't kill people. Check, I haven't done that one uh, yet. Uh, you know, be careful. Uh, you know, don't cheat on your spouse. I, mean, I haven't done that. Oh, yeah, all of you have. Because you all have this thing in your heart, this thing in your heart that is just beating darkness in it. And, and you might not have acted upon it, but it's there, and it's raging against the Creator, and you need to be set free from this. It's not merely murder. It's anger in your heart. It's not merely adultery. It's lust in your heart. And Jesus keeps getting at the heart, and he teaches to get at that, to surface it, to show us the problem that we have. It reminds me of the story of Winston Churchill and the socialite woman. Uh, the socialite woman was being particularly self-righteous and whatever, and Winston Churchill, being ever the teacher, thought that he would make a point to her, and so Churchill propositioned the socialite woman. Churchill said, Madam, would you sleep with me for five million pounds? And she replied, oh, my goodness, Mr. Churchill, well, I, I suppose we would have to discuss the terms, of course. And Churchill said, well, would you sleep with me for five pounds? And the socialite woman replied, Mr. Churchill, what kind of a woman do you think I am? To which he replied, Madam, we've already established that. Now we're just haggling over the price. Um, you see, Churchill was making a point in a weird way, of course, an inappropriate way. Uh, Jesus makes a point in, in a righteous way. He just keeps pressing into our hearts to show us where the problem is. And he's not doing that to condemn us. He's not doing that to be a jerk or whatever. He's doing that because he loves us. And he, he, wants, he wants to show us the cleansing power of his salvation. He wants to show us this, this, this bad situation, this sobering situation that is deep within us so, so that we would come to him and say, clean us, set, set us free. So, so Jesus comes into the darkness and he's, he's shining that light. And he's shining it right at the heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. What's going on? There's something that's really messed up in the hearts of men. So if we want to understand the news, and if we want to understand ourselves, we need to have a biblical cardiology. Now, uh, cardia is the Greek word for heart. When you go to the cardiologist, you know, the doctor, those are the doctors who deal with the heart. So this morning, I'm going to offer you a sermonic biblical cardiology so that we can better understand our hearts. It fits very well with what we discussed last week with the doctrine of election and God's, God's uh, saving grace and, and rescuing us. This, this fits wonderfully following what we studied last Sunday. If you weren't here, make sure to, to listen because it, it'll, it'll, help, it'll help you with some of the things we'll be discussing today. So let's, let's move from the darkness to the next point on your outline, the depravity. 
This is a, a, a 101, a basic thing to understand for cardiology in terms of what the scriptures teach us. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, and the problem of the heart is depravity. Depravity, if you're taking notes, is just a theological term to reflect what the Bible teaches about our heart's condition. As the physician of the soul, when Jesus looks at the heart, what he, what he sees is depravity. And as we look at biblical cardiology, we'll, we will see that as well. So let's talk about this first subpoint under depravity. On your outline, you'll see the what of the heart. The Bible uses the word heart to describe what is at the core. The, the Hebrew and the Greek words translated as heart are used uh, in several passages around the Bible to speak broadly of being in the center of something. What is the heart? According to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the heart is the innermost part of man. The heart is the seat of the mental or spiritual uh, of powers and capacities. The heart is also the seat of rational functions. So it's mental and spiritual and, 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 and rational we think of the heart, when we hear the word heart in our culture, we think of the heart as an emotional organ. We think of the mind as a cognitive organ. But the Bible doesn't make that kind of demarcation, like, oh, this is, this is what you think with and this is what you feel with. The, the, the Bible doesn't use those terms that way. The decisions and the choices that we make in life originate with the heart, the center of what we are. And the heart, there in the center, it, it, it gets at the things that we love and the things that we desire, the things that we want. The Bible refers to that simply as heart. Therefore, activities that we identify as cognitive, those are, those are activities of the heart. Solomon describes the importance of the heart in, write this down, Proverbs 4.23, and he says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Guard your heart. The heart is the wellspring of life. The heart is this artesian spring. All of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our desires, they gush from the heart. Every drive for meaning and significance originates in the heart. Our behavior flows from the heart. It isn't caused by circumstances or other people. It flows from the heart. The heart with its passions and its, its, its desires, it, it's the wellspring of life. There are over 750 references to the heart inside of the Bible. The scripture tells us that the heart conceals, discerns, instructs, meditates, muses, perceives, plans, plots, ponders, thinks, and weighs. Modern science attributes uh, the mental faculties of, of, of the brain and, and, and given philosophical naturalism and a peculiar dichotomy between the heart and the mind, the emotions and the brain. We have these kinds of dichotomies in, in the way that we think at a pop level. But in terms of the scripture, there's, it's, it's all lumped together. It's all lumped together. And the Bible isn't attaching anything to biological organs, thinking with my brain, feeling with my heart, and so on and so forth. Without, without getting into it, though, suffice it to say, we just look, the center of you, your thoughts, your emotions, your dreams, that's, that's what we're getting at the heart. And, and that's what's messed up with men, as we'll see. Now, the heart loves, the heart prays, the heart rejoices, the heart can seek truth, the, the, the heart can uh, seek lies, the heart can turn to dysfunction, the heart can also turn to worship. I think of Deuteronomy chapter uh, 10, verse 12, and the prophet Moses says, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord, to walk in, in all your ways after him, to love him, to serve him, and, and to give him your heart and your, your soul? You see that language there? It, it, it's the totality of, of who you are. That's what God calls his people to bring to him. Moses' question is a great question. What does God want of us? God wants your heart. He wants all of you, your dreams, your desires, your passions, your thoughts, all of it. Proverbs chapter 3, we are told, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with what? All your heart. And lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. You see cognition, understanding, and, and, and heart, and walking after him, and, and trust, all put together there. Now, why don't we trust him with all of our heart? Why don't we worship him with all of our heart? Again, it comes back to the heart of the problem, which is the problem of the heart. Moving along in the outline, what is the heart we've discussed? Now, what's the problem of the heart? The problem, as I've already noted, is depravity. But the deeper problem than depravity is that we are standing in the presence of a holy God who we have participated in a rebellion against. And so, so 
That's the greater problem. I have the problem in my heart, but then I also have the problem that I'm going to stand before the just judge. First Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says that God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I think a lot of people hear that, that verse and, they're, and, and they, are, uh, they are comforted. They go, oh yeah, you know, because God sees my heart, you know. Other people, they judge you for like what you're wearing and what you look like. God sees my heart, you know. No, no, no. You, you should be scared reading this verse because of what's in there. What does he see when he looks at your heart and my heart? Well, the scriptures tell us, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else. It's desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart's deceitful. The heart's sick. And the, and the problem is, is compounded because God not only judges our deeds, but he also judges our hearts. Going back to Jesus and his teaching, don't cheat on your spouse. Oh, I'm good. No, no, no. Lust. Ooh. Uh, don't kill people. I, I haven't killed anyone. Mm, anger. Mm. Right? He, he's going to judge what is in the heart. Continue reading in Jeremiah 17. I'll put it in front of you. Verse 10, the Lord searches the heart. I test the mind, God says through the prophet, even to give each man according to his ways. As every effect must have a cause, there is a cause or a reason to the fact that personal sin is universal. Ten out of ten people sin. It's a universal condition. And the condition is depravity. Again, what is depravity? Let me give you something you can write in your notes from theologian Dr. Schaefer. Depravity is what God declares that he sees and precisely what he sees when he looks at fallen man and the picture looks dark. Let's, uh, let, let's move in our Bibles to the book of Genesis. You can keep a finger inside of the Gospel of John because we're going to come back to it. But John uh, is paralleling Genesis in the beginning. When you get to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, you see Genesis begins with the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You keep reading through chapter 1, and it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, and God's blessing things, and, and, and he's in sweet fellowship with humanity. We see God's love. We see love in the creation. You get up to chapter 3, and this is the chapter that we refer to as the fall. And in this chapter, this is where the rebellion begins with our father and our mother. And they rebel against the one who has given them life. And, 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 and there we see the very beginnings of depravity. It, it starts there. The rebellion starts there and becomes a part of who they are, and they pass that down to us. As a result, we read in Romans chapter 3 that there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. And there is none who does good, not even one. It just keeps repeating that. Now, this flies in the face of our culture, right, that likes to say things, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm spiritual, I'm spiritual, I'm, I'm good. And you'll hear people say that. Like, I, I believe humanity is basically good. They're basically good. I, I think we're, you know, we're good, and, uh, and you know, we're, we're, we're nurtured into, people teach us bad things, and that's why people do bad things, and so the, the solution then to what's going on is more education. We need to teach people how to, how to be better, you see, because people are basically good, and so we need to nurture them, educate them into, into, uh, into morality. No, it, it doesn't work that way, because our problem isn't Merely, merely nurture, it's nature. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And, and so that's what comes out of us. And this is, going back to Dr. Schaefer's quote, this is what God sees. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. This is what God sees. Look at the text. The Lord saw the wickedness of man is great in the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If you got your own Bible, this is a, this is a verse to highlight, a, a verse to be reminded of. This is what God sees. In fact, in the following verse, it speaks of the, of the grief within God's own heart over, over what humanity has, has, has become. That's Genesis 6. Go to Genesis 8. Draw your eyes at the text in, in verse 21. Genesis 8, 21. The Lord smelled the, smooth, the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of men, for the intent of man's heart is evil from youth. It, 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 it's in there. It's in there. Again, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It's nurture, yes, but it's also nature. It's been passed on to us from birth. 
Psalm 58, let me put this in front of you in uh, Psalm 58, verse 3. We read, even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward and they, and they speak lies. Psalm 51, verse 5, surely I, I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. These verses are very instructive to having a biblical cardiology. Even a child in the womb is wayward and, and sinful from the very beginning. The, the Bible teaches that this is passed on in the same way that we pass on our genes and so your kids can kind of look like you or whatever. Uh, you pass on this, this spiritual DNA. Your children were never morally neutral, not even from the womb. And some of you, you, you understand that because you have kids and you've, you've seen it yourself. You're like, I give you everything. <laughs> I give you everything and you're still not happy. Uh, you don't believe children are sinners. We all say, volunteer in kids' church. You, know, you put two kids in a playpen and give them one toy and, and they're not, oh, you go first. Oh, no, you, know, you, you go first. You play with it and then I'll have my turn and we take turns. No, mine, mine. Some of the first words out of my kid's mouth are mine and no. That, we're born that way. This is, this is depravity. This is what this is. So the what of the heart we've discussed. Now let's move on to the how of the heart. Here's how the heart works. Uh, this is really good in particular if you're like a counselor, or you have, you're involved in people's relationships or whatever. You're going to learn some things this morning that hopefully will, will spill over to those. Let me tell you how the heart works. We do what we do because we want to do it. That's how the heart works. It's really not rocket science. Uh, you know, as a kid, you get in trouble and your parents do the, well, why did you do that? Well, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know. Why did you do that? I, I don't know. Look, stop torturing your kids and, and teach them. You know why they did that? Because they wanted to. That's why they did that. And everything that we do, we do because we want to. The heart is the center of the will. Our desires, our volition, this means that while all of humanity are perfectly free to come to God, humanity will not come to God because we do not want God. This is, uh, this is the state of the condition, the bad news to which the good news comes. People say, how can God hold you accountable to do what you cannot do? If salvation is a gift of God that you, you, can't, uh, you, you can't make yourself do it, then how can you be held responsible, people will ask. Well, this misses the issue. The heart is not a matter of ability. The heart is a matter of desire. Let me draw this for you, and I ask for you to really just commit this to memory. You have one circle, ability, and then you have another circle crossing over with it, desire. In the middle, where there's the crossover, that's the heart, that's the will. That's where, you, where your wants begin to surface, when your abilities and your desires merge. Let me explain. Let me illustrate. Uh, when you're changing a diaper, uh, you know, I'm changing my, uh, my son's diaper. We're actually almost out of this stage. Uh, we've just got the, the nighttime sleepovers or whatever, but it's been great because we've had uh, seven, and so we've just been changing diapers for a long time. Anyway, so you're changing a diaper, and you change it, and, uh, you know, and you turn it into a little burrito, and you throw it in the trash. Uh, by the way, uh, ladies, uh, my wife in particular, she can, you know, diaper burrito, like, it's crazy. I can never totally get it. I'm just, ah. Anyway, so you're changing a diaper, and you get it off or whatever, uh, and I throw it in the trash. That's what you do. You throw it in the trash. Now, here's the thing. Talking about ability, when I change the diaper, I'm totally able to, to, to just lick it before I throw it in the trash. I'm totally able to take a bite out of it before I throw it in the trash, right? I'm able to do that. But in, in, in 16 years of changing diapers, I've never done that. It's never happened. I could, I could, I could, I could, but I've never done that. Why, why not? Because I don't want to. Because I don't desire to do that. So I'm able, but I, I don't desire, therefore I don't do. Now let's use an illustration on the other side. Uh, I would love to leap over buildings in a single bound. Right? I would love to levitate. That would totally get your attention on a Sunday morning when you're like snoozing off on me. If I just went, you know, I just magnetoed in here and hovered over where you were seated. That would, I would, that would be cool. Wouldn't that be cool? Just, you know, I would love to be able to do that. But I, I, I'm, I'm not able. I'm not able to do that. 
therefore I can't choose to do that. I would love to materialize bacon. Just, just that would be great. That would be a great uh, power to have. I don't have that power, so I can't do this. I have the power to eat the diaper, but I don't want to eat the diaper, so I don't eat the diaper. I don't have the power to levitate or materialize bacon, so I don't materialize bacon or, or levitate. You see, I desire things that I'm not able to do, and I'm able to do things that I don't desire. I end up doing what I do when my ability and my desire connects. Here's the thing. Since our hearts are dead, since our hearts are enslaved to sin, and we're born that way, we will not desire God. We simply will not want him. He will be like the diaper to us. Ugh, trash can. Ugh. But don't you want him? God's so good. He loves you. He created the world. He's, he's so awesome. Ugh, I don't, ugh, don't want him. Now, you know, people respond, well, you know, I, I, but, but I'm spiritual. You know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a good person or whatever. You know, I love God. I just don't like your God, Matt. You know, you're, you're being really narrow-minded, Matt. I just don't like your God. But I, I love God. You know, I say, well, okay, but there's a God who is, and there's a God people want, and the two are not the same. And the God that you want is a God that conveniently looks like you and a God who doesn't punish Talk to people about damnation. Talk to people about hell. They don't want hell. But they want a God, at least their concept of God. And people will get mad and, and say, you think I'm going to hell? Sort of a rhetorical tactic to make you seem insensitive and judgmental. But the truth is, they should say, your God is repulsive to me. Spending an eternity with him in heaven would be hell to me, and I don't want him. That would be the truth. While they simply cannot see this, this is true at the core of the heart to the fallen man, and we're born with this disposition. We do not want the God who is, so we make up gods that we want. Or we just deny altogether, in the, in the, in the, in the modern advent of atheism, uh, you just say, well, there is no God. Oh, you have a God, though. You have a God, what you ascribe worth to, that is your God. You see, your, your friends who aren't in church this Sunday morning, they're in church. They're worshiping this morning. They are worshiping something. They're ascribing divine status to something. Everyone does this. We all worship because we all have a heart, and the heart craves and desires and pursues. The problem is it's fallen. So in our fallenness, we recoil at the reality of God. But by grace, God comes, what we saw in John, right? He comes, let's go back to John, in fact. He comes, John chapter 1, and what did we see in John 1? He came into the world. He's the light. He enlightens men, this text says. He is in the world. He is, he's come we, we read that he became flesh, that he revealed glory. John chapter 1. When you get back into John, just take a stop and look at those verses we read and then turn the page and find your way to John 3. I want to show you something there. How can we be rescued from these fallen hearts? It comes by grace. Look at Proverbs 19, verse 3. I'll put it in front of you. The foolishness of man ruins his way, and his heart rages against the Lord. What will we do? What is our hope? This moves us to the question on your outline, how is the heart problem remedied? Matthew chapter 19, on the lips of our Lord. Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them here on his lips, and he said, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. The problem is remedied by none other than God himself. And, and, and this is why arguing with those who have different gods or arguing with those who claim there is no God, the atheists, arguments never change the heart because their problem isn't a problem of information. The problem is the problem of depravity. And depravity won't be solved by education. It has to be overcome by the power of God. God must breathe life into our dead hearts. 
From the days of old, God told the people of Israel these things. Look at Ezekiel 36. I'll put that in front of you. The day would come, God prophesied through the prophet Ezekiel to the people, when he would give a new heart, and he would put a new spirit in his people, and he would remove the heart of stone of flesh and, and give them a, a, this new heart and, and, and put his spirit in them. Verse 27, I will put my spirit in you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll be careful to observe my ordinances. I'll change your heart. So again, desire and ability. You will obey me because you'll want to. You'll want to. It, it, it won't be hard. It won't be burdensome. I'll give you a new heart that will want what is right. This is what we call being born again. It cannot be solved by education, by works, by it, it can't be solved by those things. It, it has to be a supernatural thing. Matthew chapter 23, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You are like whitewashed tombs. They look beautiful on the outside, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. Salvation is not a result of works. Salvation is not a, a, a shower. It's not a shower. It's a changing within. It's not a mere scrubbing of your skin. It's a renewing of what is deep within. John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man uh, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a, a ruler of the Jewish people. And this man came to Jesus by night and he said, Rabbi, uh, we know that you have come from God uh, as a teacher, and no one can do the signs that you do unless God's with him. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I love this because the guy is kind of, you know, smoozing him, just like, hey, you know, you're a great rabbi, blah, blah. And then Jesus just, you know, just cuts straight for it. He just goes straight for the heart, and he goes, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. He wasn't even talking about the kingdom of God. He, but Jesus just goes for the heart. And Nicodemus said, well, how can a man uh, be born when he's old? He can't enter into his mom and be born again. That's really gross. And then Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you didn't hear it the first time, unless one is born again of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Water, this is likely the, you know, the, 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 the breaking of the water, being born first naturally. So you're first born naturally, and, and now you must be born again. That which is born of flesh, verse 6, is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is the Spirit. Do not be amazed that I said you must be born again. Don't you, don't you know this, that you must be born again? Don't you, don't you know that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart? Don't, 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 you, don't you know this? You, you need new birth. Well, how, how, do, how do I get that? Like, how, how, how does that come? Keep reading the text. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You cannot make yourself be born again. Going back to the diaper illustration, because you do not want it. You will not choose it because you do not want it. And hence, last week's sermon, we were talking about salvation, it being the work of God. We see these kinds of passages reminding us of this. Here, I'll put some in front of you. John 6, 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 6, 65, No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. John 8, 43, You, you don't understand what I'm saying, Jesus said? Because you're not able to listen to my word. Those who see won't see. Those who hear won't hear because of this problem at the core of men. And when God moves, and when God changes the heart, then we see repentance and faith. And hence, the call of the gospel is to repent and to believe. And hence, we preach this because God uses this to change hearts. And it's the only thing that he uses to this end that he has revealed to us. The power of his word brings life into dead hearts. John chapter 3, draw your eyes back at the text. How can these things be? Nicodemus asks in verse 9. And Jesus answered and he said to him, aren't you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? 
Truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, and you, you, you do not accept the testimony. If I told you earthly things and you did not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world will be saved through him. And, and, and he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world. We saw that in John 1. And the men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and he does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The call of the gospel is, is, is a call to see the, the heart of the problem and to come to the Lord and say, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Forgive me. Have your way with me. I can't do it. I need you. I need you to change this. And in that wondrous work that we call new birth, or being born again, there the desires begin, begin to flow. And then we find ourselves doing things that we otherwise wouldn't do, and as a result, God gets all the glory. Faith and repentance are gifts that come from Him. And, and, and it's an ongoing gift. The Christian life is just that. We're following after Him, and we, we stumble, and we make mistake, and we find our, our, ourselves back into sin, and, and we wander, and we get off track, and, and, and God doesn't give up on us. He keeps pursuing us, and, and by His Spirit, drawing these desires in us that we would come to the Father. And so the call of the Christian life is repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. The call of the gospel isn't the ABCs and the one, two, threes. It's, it's absolutely everything to us. And in that gift of salvation, then, we are now coming to God and we are wrestling and fighting for holiness. You want to grow in the Christian life, it, it's not a passive thing. It requires work. Hence, we're called to be disciples. To be a disciple is to be one who works as an apprentice in learning a trade. One who studies to learn a discipline. That's what a disciple is. You, you have to intentionally organize your life in such a way that you are becoming more and more like Christ. That, that requires a ton of work. It, it, it's difficult at times. It's discouraging at times. In particular, if you're looking around at loved ones and friends and, and, and you feel alone and no one's with you and you're, you're pressing on. And in particular, as you're looking inside of your heart and you see things in it and you go, why is that still there? Why am I still fighting with this? Proverbs chapter 23, we read at the beginning of our worship service today. In Proverbs chapter 23, we, we read this. Apply your heart to discipline. Apply your heart to discipline. This is hard work. Apply your heart to discipline. Apply your ears to knowledge. Do not hold back discipline from a child, the text says. If you don't discipline the child, what, what's going to happen to the child? He's going he's to end up in shale. He, he's just going to run around like crazy. You, you have to have discipline. My son, if your heart is wise... My heart will be glad for you, my son. And from the inmost being, I will rejoice, my son, when you're doing what is right. From a father to a son in Proverbs, do not, verse 17, let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of the Lord. Surely there is a future and a hope. Listen, my son, direct your heart in the way. That, that's what a godly parent cries out to their child. That's what a pastor cries out to his church. Church. Direct your heart in the way. Church, apply your heart to discipline. Apply your ears to knowledge. This Christian life is hard work, but by golly, it's worth every bit of it. Walk in the way. Now I know, and you know, that you won't walk in the way. And this is why... You need to be reminded every Sunday and every single day of the one who has walked in the way, of the one who has taken your sins upon himself and he offers you ultimate forgiveness in him. You must come 
to him. I plead with you. You must come to him and have your sins forgiven. You must come to him for salvation. And, and those of you who are saved, you must continue to come back to this sweet, sweet place of the cross of Calvary. For there you will find strength for the darkness that is all around us and within us. He will show you the way. He will bear his life in you. Christ used the illustration of a tree and the bearing of fruit from a tree. He, he will bear fruit in you. For most non-Christians, as well as many Christians, the Christian life sounds like it's just a bunch of keeping rules. And, you know, oh, I got more stuff I got to do. I got uh, keeping rules. I don't want to keep rules. My mom and my dad maybe keep rules. I don't want to keep rules. I don't, I don't want to do this. God, God has concerns, of course, with our keeping of, of rules, as, as any loving father would have in his home for the children to obey obey and keep rules. Those rules are there for their good. But by golly, it's, it's not about mere keeping of rules. It's about a relationship. And all relationships have implicit in them rules. Uh, I, 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 my wife and I, we have a rule that we don't uh, sleep with other people. We, we don't do that. Uh, we have a rule that we don't talk to each other certain ways. We have rules about how we spend our time and, and what we do and we, we have rules, and that, that's a part of being in love with someone. I have rules with my children. Uh, and my children have, have rules with me. That I feed them, that I clothe them, that I, that I love them. All loving relationships this is in. Uh, we mustn't come with this, oh, this is just a bunch of rules. I, I don't, I don't want to do this. No, this, this is love. This is relationship. This, this is what it's, any relationship is to be. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose an orphan child uh, goes into the system. A child goes into the system, is bounced around from home to home, group homes, and no, no one wants the child, and the child can feel it, and the child gets in, an, in, a, in a new home and just keeps getting kicked out and ping-ponged around and goes from home to home and rules and rules, and, you know, doesn't want to hear it. Well, eventually the child finds himself in, in the home of a, of a loving Christian family. The child comes in and the family lays down, hey, these are the rules for our home. And son, we want to adopt you. We want you to be permanent in our home. And these are the rules for our home. And we want you to stay here. We don't want you to ping pong around. And the child pushes it, you know, let's, let's see. And the child breaks rules and does things. And they keep coming back to him, we love you. We want you to be here. And they adopt the child in, in spite of. They, they adopt the child in, in, in spite of the behavior. And there in that, the child begins to see, they love me unconditionally. Even when I do wrong, they, they, they love me. And as a result of that kind of love, the child then finds himself obeying because of the relationship of the love that's there. This is the gospel. In fact, the Bible uses the language of adoption uh, to describe uh, the work of salvation. We were orphaned, we were exiled, we were brought home, and we were given the Father as our Father. And as we know His love, these rules aren't a burden for us. Hearing the commands of, of the law telling me to do this or don't do this, it's, it's not a burden to me because He's received me. Look at these, these, I'll put some of these in front of you, like godly attitudes. We're told to fear God, to be humble, to love others, to be generous, to be forgiving, to, to, to be submissive, to have peace and contentment. Those aren't burdens, those are good things. Now the problem is, because of the heart, I have a lot of the opposite going on. Instead of fear of God, I have fear of men. Instead of humility, I have pride. Instead of the love of others, I have the love of self. Instead of laying down my life, I, I have self-preservation. Instead of generosity, I have a covetousness. In, in, instead of open-heartedness, I have envy. Instead of forgiveness, I have anger. Instead of peace and contentment, I have anxiousness. Instead of submission, I, ha I have rebellion. And so that wrestle on, on this side of eternity, because the day is going to come where this new birth that is placed in us will be ultimately perfected, 
when Christ returns and raises literally the dead and gives us new bodies that are free from all of this stuff. Oh, the day, oh, the day to be set free from this body of sin and death. Oh, the day to have, have a body that will be incorruptible. Oh, the day, oh, brothers and sisters, the day is coming. Let us draw near. And until then, let us fight, let us fight for repentance and faith. We move from the what of the heart, the how of the heart, to the why of the heart on your outline. Let me give you something very, uh, a simple way of thinking of our hearts as you're wrestling in your sanctification. And you find yourself maybe committing sins and telling yourself, I'm not going to do that again. And then, uh, then you do it. And you find yourself wrestling with that. Why am I wrestling? It's a very simple principle that we find in the teaching of Jesus. Let me give it to you in one simple verse. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Going back to uh, the illustration of the kids and, and, you know, hey, why did you do that? Uh, you know, and torturing your kids. Why did you do that? Because, you know, look, they do what they do because that's what they want to do. You want to do what you treasure the most. The proverbial, why did you take the cookie from the cookie jar? Because the child treasures the taste of the cookie. Cookies taste good. Amen? <laughs> right? Uh, get out of here if you can. Amen. A cookie tastes good. For Pete's sake, cookies taste good. That's why we eat them. We do what we want to do because it, it's what we treasure. It's what feels good to us. What, what cravings, what tastes rule your heart? When pressures increased, uh, do you try to get the upper hand on the situation or people involved? Is it hard for you to trust God because you think that you will be used or manipulated? Do you lack courage in Christ because you're afraid of what people might think or say or do? Are you judgmental and critical of others, gossiping and complaining about them? Are the typical ways that you respond to trials uh, comfort-driven, fear-driven, people-pleasing-driven? What, what ultimately is ruling the heart, that's what we're going to be acting on. And so in our sanctification, we're constantly coming back and trying to analyze this. What am I treasuring? What am I treasuring? Why do I keep going back to this? Why, why do I wander into this? And the answer is always going to be because it's what you're treasuring. And so, so you go, well, how do, I get, how do I get in that? Look, look, you repent and you cry out to God for help. You cry out to your brothers and sisters as well. I need help trying to see my blind spots. I, I, I need you to speak into my life. This is why we have community groups in the church where we get together and we talk about the sermon and, and we go, hey, help me. I, 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 I need help seeing certain things. Jeremiah said the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. It's constantly going to be tricking us. So we need others in our lives to say, Hey, brother, hey, sister, this is what I see. And give people permission to do that. What rules our, our hearts are going to be the, those things that we're treasuring, and that's going to trigger the behavior in this, which brings me to the final point on the outline. We've looked at the darkness. We've discussed the depravity. And I want to close with reflections on duty and delight. So we started with the darkness. We, we, we saw, you know, what's going on and violence in the culture and all this stuff, and then... We really just zoom in on the heart and we realize like, hey, we've got this darkness within us. We need new birth. We need to be rescued. We need the light to shine. We saw who the light is in John. Uh, in Psalm 18, verse 28, this is referenced on your outline. It says, you light my lamp. The Lord my God illumines my darkness. As, as I'm concluding the message, I, I, I want to encourage you to press into the Lord even, even now as we're going to come to the communion table, press into the Lord and say, illumine my darkness. Shine, shine light within me, Lord. Re reveal in me what I'm treasuring that's robbing me of the delight that I should have in the duty that you have given. The duty of his law to obey him becomes burdensome when there's no delight in it. I, I, when, I love my wife. The rules that we have in marriage, don't cheat on each other, etc., those aren't burdens to me. I love her, so I delight in those. Oh, gosh, another day where I can't cheat on you. This is so hard. <laughs> what? No, 
it's, it's easy. I, I, I love her. It's, just, it's easy. So, too, when we're right with the Lord, the duty of the law becomes a delight for us. And that becomes a sweet part in sanctification when we're growing in the ways of the Lord and we're enjoying it. I like reading my Bible. That's why I read it. You know, oh, I'm reading the Bible. Oh, oh, oh. And you could get there. You could get there in the Christian life. You can have moments where you're like, I, just, I don't feel nothing when I read this. I don't want to do this. Oh, my gosh. Uh, read, I said I was going to do the read through the Bible a year thing. Oh, I'm so behind. Oh, my gosh. This is so boring. I don't want to do it. But then you get to that, that sweet place where you can't put it down. It's a lot like exercise. When you first start exercising, it, 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 it's tiring. You're sore. You don't like it. You have to make yourself go. Eventually, your body begins to adapt, and you can't imagine not doing it. And when you don't make it to the gym or you don't make that run, you actually feel worse because you've gotten to the place where it's a delight to do the duty. So too with the Christian life, we are fighting for that delight in the Lord. We're seeking Him. We're crying out to Him that that delight would come. And we read in Scripture, the other reference here in the conclusion, Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is our strength. When I lack strength, I lack joy. What am I filling my cup with? What is the well that I, I'm drinking from? When, when I'm drinking from His Word, when I'm walking in the Spirit, when I'm pursuing Him and seeking after Him and and, 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 and drinking from the deep well of the gospel and God's grace, joy comes. Joy always comes. Brothers and sisters, never doubt in the darkness what God reveals in the light. Ne never in your sleeplessness doubt the, what you knew when you were rested in Him. The call of the gospel is a call to keep coming back and keep seeking Him and keep pursuing so, so the Bible talks about it like walking and seeking and these, these kinds of metaphors. Because of this problem of the heart, we are, we're always going to be walking after him. And because the problem of the heart is, is so dark and it's so depraved and all, all the rest, when we're talking about salvation, it's so important that we don't reduce the gospel to, I don't know if you heard this when you were a kid, if, if you were raised in church, I certainly did. People, well-meaning adults would say things like, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. Have you heard that one? Invite Jesus into your heart. As a kid, I thought it was weird because it's like, little Jesus, put him in here. Uh, no, no, you need to do something much more radical. You, you need to slay your heart. You need to be born again. In fact, as I was thinking about this, I, 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 got, I got to Google because I couldn't help myself, and I found this car uh, with this, pray this, uh, some well-meaning believer driving this around. Pray this, Jesus, I believe in you. Come into my life. Forgive my sins, heal me, bless me. We reduce the gospel and the radical depravity of fallen men when we make the message of salvation sound like little Jesus just crawling into our hearts. Uh, Dr. Platt uh, said this very well, so I'll just quote, Accept Jesus into your heart. Pray this prayer. Invite Jesus into your life. Should it not concern us that there is no superstitious prayer in the New Testament? Should it not concern us that the Bible never uses the phrase accept Jesus into your heart or invite Jesus into your life? It's not the gospel we see being preached. It's modern evangelism built on sinking sand and it runs the risk of disillusioning millions of souls. It's a very dangerous thing to lead people to think that they are Christian when they have not biblically responded to the gospel. If we are not careful, we will take the lifeblood out of Christianity and put Kool-Aid in its place, and it will taste better to the crowds. It's not just dangerous, it's damning. Now, I have no problem with, you know, sort of this uh, concept of having Jesus in your life or anything like this, but it must include the call of repentance and faith. It must include the, the message that you deserve death and damnation, but the one who has come who has fulfilled that. It, it, it must include the proclamation of who God is and what God has done. And it must be more than just a vitamin. No, it's a radical dying to yourself. It's a radical surrendering to God. It's a radical crying out to God. And so as we come to the communion table and we sing songs at the close of service, I want to invite you to do that. 
if you've never come to the Lord, if you are not saved, if you have, if you have not cried out to Him for forgiveness, do so this day. If you have done that, continue doing it again and cry out to the Lord that He would reveal His way in you so that as you leave this place today, you'll be experiencing this repentance and faith transformation. That's so much more than just, oh, put them in your heart. It, it, it's so much more. It's so much more, and it's so good. He saved us to, to change us, and He's transforming us. So let's cry out to Him. Let's seek Him to do a work in us now. Uh, Father, we come to You. We so desperately need You. We have read in Your Word that we have a problem within. And we cannot remedy this problem. Thankfully, You have come to solve it for us. And so, Father, we come now and we cry out to the Son sent for us, the light that came to the darkness. We pray, O oh God, that this day in this room there would be none, there would be none who would not know Your grace. Be gracious, I pray, this day. And to those who are in You, O oh God, we pray that You would do a work within us. As we come to the table, as we get the cup, as we have the bread, as we eat and, and, and drink, Lord, grab our attention. Lord, do something in us. We, we don't want to just come to church on Sunday and check it off the box of what we did for the week. We want you. We want to know you. We want to know your power. We want to know your cleansing. We want to know your forgiveness. So, Lord, I, I pray today that we would know this, that you would sanctify us, that you'd have your way with us. Lord, receive these songs of worship in this time of communion. In the name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen.